In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Discussion with my honored guests C.L. Mitchell and John Corr. We're going to be covering in our continuing series today Genesis 14 with a review of Genesis 13. John Corr, C.L. Mitchell, welcome to you today. Thank you, David. Good morning. Actually, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. <laughs> it's morning somewhere. <laughs> yes. Let's start off with a review of Genesis 13. I know that I was remote in our Los Angeles studio when we covered this, and what an incredible program it was. I felt, though, that there were several verses in predicting both of you uh, at the time in wanting to really go back and just uh, complete this section. I would imagine we would be talking about 15 through 18. Would one of you gentlemen like to just uh, review uh, those final verses of Genesis 13 to start this for our listeners today? Sure, uh, I'll I'll get I'll start out with just you know in chapter thirteen we had of course this um, well sort of this this division or the separation of Abram and Lot Uncle Abram and and his nephew Lot um, and they had just come out of Egypt uh, becoming uh, having become rich uh, by the Pharaoh there but uh, on the way back to the Promised Land and living in the Promised Land they had. Uh, issues with with their wealth. Of course, they had too much of it. And um, uh, Abram um, gives his nephew Lot a decision and a choice to make. And, and Lot looks and he decides to pick, of course, uh, the fertile valley uh, of the um, uh, that is that is lush and 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 able to satisfy his his desires and also satisfy his flock. But after Lot is separated, and it's almost as if uh, God is waiting for Lot to be separated from him because uh, the question up to this point has been, is Lot going to be the one who is going to inherit all of Abram's uh, promises? And after Lot leaves, then the Lord speaks to Abram and gives him the same choice and says, listen, now look everywhere, uh, everywhere you see, north, south, east, and west, guess what? All that land that you see is yours. And God then reaffirms his promise that he had given back in chapter 12. And then he says, I will make, I will give you all the land that you see to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants numerous as, as the dust of the earth. And, uh, and then he says, he tells uh, Abram to go out and walk on the land. And Abram proceeds to do this. So this is sort of after the departure of Lot, after Lot has been ta- is sort of out of the way. God then reaffirms the same promise, and the question now is answered. No, Lot's not going to be one of the, uh, is not going to be the quote-unquote son who is going to inherit these promises spoken of in chapter 12, 
but God has another plan, and his plan is going to use Abram as as uh, a father of of, a dis, of numerous descendants, and the land that he sees that he's going to walk upon, he will be given uh, and to his descendants forever. At that, at after that, uh, Abram then worships the Lord, builds an altar, uh, and then the course of the chapter ends right there. Seal Mitchell, may I come to you? What? Obviously, we see Abram in a completely different mindset and mode. Huge loyalty to the Lord. What about Lot? How would Lot be feeling? Is he feeling at this stage somewhat betrayed uh, by Abram? How would he be feeling as he departed this land and moved to his chosen land? I would not say that he's feeling betrayed by Abram. I think instead there's a sense of disrespect that is occurring particularly under the cultural panoply of the ancient Near Eastern um, framework. Um, Within the framework of these verses there are areas that should have been written that are not written not because we are missing them from the canon Instead, they are not written because they are not evinced or manifest in the character of Lot. Again, as the younger, he should have acquiesced or surrendered to the preference of Abram. Secondarily, um, as the individual who is coming along for the journey, just as a matter of priority and headship within the framework of the clan that is traveling nomadically, he should have deferred to the preference and to the leadership and to the wisdom uh, of Abraham, um, Abram at this time. Again, having been cared for by Abram and really being the benefactor of Abram's journey with God of faith, he really again should have surrendered and made Abram the choice figure here and the benefactor. Um, he does not do any of that. Um, uh, having seen the advantage of being with Abram, he now senses that he can do this on his own. So I wouldn't argue that there is a resentment as a result of any kind of maltreatment um, on Abraham's behalf to Lot. Uh, again, him being Abram at this point, not yet Abraham. What I would suggest is, as I suggested last week, that the language that is used is deliberately employed by Moses. Um, This book is not written during the time of the sojourners. It is written actually later. And Moses is very deliberately trying to draw an illusion, if you will, betwixt the children of Israel and Abram and Lot in their travels. He's not arguing that Lot is an unbeliever. Uh, Rather, what he's arguing is he is an immature, immature believer of the greatest quality. As such, the same kind of bickering that's known for the immature believer and Israelites that are there along the journey out of Egypt and and heading into the promised land is going to be seen within the life of Lot. And so Lot's real issue is not with Abram as much as it is to advantage, self-aggrandize himself, as well as his issue is with God. He's almost going to try to supplant 
the promise or supplant the blessing, but he's going to do so interestingly. He's going to do so finding no real fascination or fulfillment with the land of promise and with the promises of God. Rather, he's going to find fulfillment, he thinks, with what he beholds with his eyes, and therein is going to be the lack of fulfillment, the lack of self-exaltation, and in fact, the fulfillment of self-humiliation, not only for himself, but for his larger clan, his family, his wife, and his daughters, and also the Moabites in the future. That, in some ways, perhaps reflects the human condition or reflects life when, correct me if I'm wrong, in this situation it's it's expressing that one when one gains or benefits by a decision that there is always somebody the other side of that equation that loses uh, or has those regrets perhaps absolutely but Lot did not have to lose his loss was because he made a choice that was externally motivated he was looking for self-advantageousness now within the human lot of our fallen condition and scenario uh, and I think I want to bring John in on this but within the lot of our human condition and our fallenness you can be certain when we do something for self-exaltation when we do something for self-aggrandizement when we do something in order to um, lift ourselves to the to the cost of others therein lies number one the 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 reality of our fallenness but also the consequences that fall with that sort of corrupt character and that may be indicative in today's society of of the way that we can uh, see this through ego through people having so much ego today in this predatory greed that we live in would, would that be something you would concur with absolutely and John you you CL you wanted John to follow up well, on that uh, just to just to add to, to it CL and I think what uh, I think what lot may be feeling in, in in one sense you know a sense of I've <laughs> I've made out for Abram I I've I've uh, come into the um, you know Abram uh, poor Abram uh, didn't make out as well as I did you know uh, I got the first choice and and uh, and uh, and I made out. So I don't think I don't think Lot is is necessary. Think of Abram in any light, other than the fact of oh, the poor guy got second choice. I got the better choice. Nice knowing you, Abraham. See you later. I think, uh, and I think this is an example of really the mentality of people today of of seeking to satisfy self first, of what's in it for me. And this is exactly because he does not come to Abram and says, listen, Uncle Abram, you're my uncle. God has given you the promises. I defer to you. You, you go first. No. He says, oh, sure, I'll, I'll take the first choice. And having taken the better choice, so he thinks, not knowing the ramifications that are going to follow of where he's going to live, he leaves Abram thinking that Abram has, has, uh, has you know, gotten the worst choice. What what what's uh, unfortunate for a lot is that he does not he does not have to leave. He did not have to, he he's under the umbrella of Abram's protection and Abram's blessing, so to speak. He is blessed because Abram was blessed, and he doesn't get the advantage, or he 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 misses out on hearing God speak to Abram again, because it's not until Lot leaves that then God says to Abr- to, to Abram, "Let me reaffirm my promises to you." And guess what? All this land that Lot did not want to stay with you, it's going to be yours. And though it does not look very well by sight right now, there's great blessings and great promises and great things are going to happen here because of that. And so I think Lot really missed out on the uh, uh, because of his uh, looking out for himself rather than looking out for 
you know, the good of his uh, of his uncle. For lot, of course, th- would it be correct to say that it really is opportunity disguised as loss? It it is opportunity certainly descri- uh, uh, disguised as loss, but I think that is correct, but it's not enough. Because the land here is not just geographical. It is not just a lesson that we see taught to us through topography, as it were. The land here is theological. What is being offered is a place to dwell that God has chosen and a man or a nation that God has chosen for himself to dwell in the land that he has chosen. Lot's choice, and I I wish I could really for uh, our benefit and for the audience's benefit, I wish I could pull up a a, a splendiferous map or grandiose mammoth map, if you will, because this choice that Lot makes is just on the outskirt of the land of promise, or at least at the very edge itself. Uh, This immediate gratification is not within the framework of the promise. It's just on the outside because this land does not appear to be as beneficial as the temporary, uh, um, self-satisfying, self-exalting land that appears so plush. Now, Now, several things must be said on a theological scale concerning that because what Lot is saying is what God is offering is not immediately attractive. What we must say by application and implication is the Christian life is not always immediately attractive. And to lie on just the outside of the truths of God and our responsibility and culpability to them is, is, is something that may eventually be detrimental, although it may immediately seem most beneficial to us. And so the larger lesson of this geography, the larger lesson of this topography, the larger lesson of this opportunity missed is that although he slightly missed it geographically, the miss was really a large spiritual chasm of a miss. And it's the same thing today. When we offer God's truths to exist or to house oneself or to take residence just outside of those truths may seem like we are just at a a moment's grasp geographically within mileage of God's promises. Uh, For Abram, here's the reality. He could look and see Genesis 19, the fire and the smoke of that place. And, And I'm sure then, equally, within eyeshot was also this promised land to Lot's eyes as well. But the reality is there was such a grand chasm that one land bore the discipline of God and the judgment of God to the point of destruction even in today's economy. And one land held the promise of God despite even the constant barrage of attacks in today's economy. And I think that this is well worth discussing uh, as we enter into Genesis 14 because clearly the world that we live in today is a world where people look for immediate gratification. So I I guess that's why we're laboring it a bit, but it's a, a good discussion. If you gentlemen do not have any further comments on 13, may we proceed to Genesis 14? Yeah, sure. War of the Kings, uh, it, it, it seems to me in some ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there are similarities in the narrative between this and Genesis 5. It's a, it, to some 
extend a chronological effort here really does uh, move into more of a narrative story. C.O. Mitchell, would you like to uh, start us off uh, with Genesis 14, uh, War of the Kings, and give us a, a fairly uh, brief overview before we get into the details? A- absolutely. When we're dealing with chapter number 14 in, in a summarization of sorts, um, we have to remember that the decision that is going to be made um, by lot is going to have consequences. They're going to have some immediate consequences, and although we turn the page, I think we should also realize that this is really some time later between chapters 13 and 14. Um, and uh, uh, some time later, a powerful coalition of kings from Mesopotamia are going to actually invade Canaan, and in the process, they're going to actually take Lot captive. And uh, Abram is going to, of course, retaliate with a surprise attack at night, and he's going to recover Lot and the possessions that those kings had, in fact, taken. Uh, Upon his return to his home, um, uh, Abram is going to receive a reward by way of spiritual blessing from uh, Melchizedek, who we take to be a literal person, who is the king of Salem or Shalom. And uh, he's received an offer at this point uh, of a reward from uh, the king of Sodom, Bera, but he's going to refuse that. And Abram is going to, in fact, in declining it, um, uh, he's going to accept the reward, uh, he's going to not accept it, rather, he's going to decline to accept the reward because he does not want to tarnish the promise of God given to him in chapter 12 and also repeated again in chapter number 13. And so Abram's realization that victory and possessions come from God alone enabled him to avoid the danger, and it is a danger, of accepting the gifts from the wicked and to wait for God to provide what he had promised in chapter 12 and repeated in chapter 13, uh, albeit in brevity and with some expansion. And in this chapter, we're going to see a much different Abram from the coward who endangered his wife in chapter number 12. In other words, Abram is steadily becoming the Abraham that we're going to recognize later on. And John Corr, going to move to you, sir. I read this narrative, and it could easily be mistaken, I think, in seeing a focus upon Lot, but actually the focus really is on Abram. And if I look at all the human frailties and all the programming that I work with, and and you look at today's frailties, uh, codependence and and fear and, and all of these other issues, am I right in saying in this that it really is talking about forgiveness as a central theme that Abram is offering out here? Yeah, I, I think that's a good uh, a good insight because here you have Abram coming to the rescue of Lot, who uh, sort of you know has shown disrespect to his uncle in the previous chapter, and you see Abram not hesitating at coming to Lot's rescue. There is no hard feelings. There's no uh, uh, you know let Lot you know he made his bed, let him sleep in it too. No, you see Abram as a warrior in one sense in this in this chapter. And coming to Lot's rescue, Lot is is going to be taken captive by some pretty powerful kings, and uh, it's interesting that the first uh, the first eleven or so verses are just devoted to these kings and these uh, and how powerful they are and the coalition that they have, and I think that's painting the picture, so to speak, to to show uh, it's going to show Abram's strength as well and his strength in the in the Lord, uh, but there is I think that insight is 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 very good as far as. Uh, Abram um, comes to Lot's rescue, and he is not bitter, 
and uh, Lot is given a chance perhaps to join Abram again. We find out that later on Lot happens to go back to Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and to, to return to where he was from. But yeah, there's uh, there's a, a good human element here, and I think what happens is that sometimes you know, as as human beings, there is a tendency to remember the wrongs that people have done against us, and it's our, it's a decision we have to make whether to forgive them or not. And you see Abram as an example of a person who forgives, and uh, and is by his very action is is showing love by rescuing his his lot, uh, his nephew Lot. Seal Mitchell, I know that when we reach chapter 5, I can remember saying to you, well, <clears throat> there seems to be an awful lot of chronology here and a lot of detail that we may not want to cover, and you immediately corrected me on that. Looking at this, <laughs> in Genesis 14, War of the Kings, obviously the former verses are very chronological in a way, and I'm sure that our listeners will have this chapter in front of them. But in those former verses, are there any particular names that we should concentrate on, focus on, relative to Abram's journey here, before we hit the rich narrative towards the end of the chapter? I think so, and, and, and thank you, because it, it actually argues a larger concept, and that is that everything within the framework of the biblical text um, is, is not placed there um, haphazardly. It is placed there deliberately in order to communicate certain truths. I'd like to point out a couple of things. Um, in, in chapter 14, verse number 1, and two, uh, our, our listeners can really look at a lot of names that you see within these verses. And the question is, what is the significance of these names? Well, first of all, you have four kings. I want to make sure that we're clear about that. Um, and they're residing in the eastern part of the Fertile Crescent. And uh, they're actually seeking to dominate the land of Canaan by subjugating the five kings who lived there. And so they probably wanted to keep the trade routes between Mesopotamia and Egypt open and under their control. Um, and it's kind of interesting because this is really what I want you to notice. Uh, it is really interesting that the people living around Babylon actually initiated this first war mentioned in the Bible. This is actually the first war mission, mentioned in the Bible. This is really proceeding from the modern-day Iraq area. Right. And now... Do I really need to just kind of draw the comparison or the parallel? Because two are really important here. More are, but I only have time to really mention two. Uh, number one, from what area is Abram called? From this very area where these individuals are initiating the first war. Secondarily, um, uh, this area is not just a problem historically. This area is not just a problem in the future of Israel, and now I'm considering both the northern and southern kingdom, and this kingdom or this area is not just going to be a problem to the world under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who is the son of Nabopolassar, who sends his um, uh, general to come and uh, actually sack Jerusalem in 586-587 BCE. Uh, but this is going to be an issue all the way to the book of Revelation. God is finally going to have to deal with Babylon the Great, uh, whether that's going to involve some literal dealings or whether that's going to involve some spiritual dealings. Still, this concept of Babylon, its idolatry, its, its propensity or proclivity toward war, uh, 
as represented within this first mention. And now let me just stop and give a biblical interpretive clue in, if you will. Because in biblical interpretation, there's the law of first mention. And when you see something mentioned for the first time, you really should unpack it and take note of it specifically. Because when you see it mentioned later, very oft, it's going to have some aspect of what you originally saw within the ingredients of its first occurrence. So always when you see Babylon, just like in this first mention, most often in the biblical text than not, it's always going to be immersed in some kind of problematic war scenario. And these four kings really bring that out for us. And, you know, what's interesting is that, of course, you know, the Israelites are the first ones hearing this from Moses, and they're learning some Great lessons, and one of the lessons, of course, they're learning is is here is Abram, who we haven't even got to this part of the story yet, but he's going to be facing some kings who are more, who are stronger than he is, you know, you would think, because of the people that uh, this coalition has defeated. But yet, God is able to use Abram and his men to defeat them. An encouraging thing to 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 the Israelites who have just come out of Egypt, who were just slaves; they're not trained military men. But the principle here is is of God himself being their warrior for them as they go into the promised land, as they go into to take on people who are bigger and stronger than them. He is showing them by example of, of what Abraham did to these kings in rescuing Lot, that God is able to use anybody and he can do the, the fighting for them. They have to trust them. That's the whole principle behind uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, the Lord going with them and, and doing the battle for them. And so they're seeing an example, even way back from Father Abraham, the very first battle that is mentioned of God defeating him. Because, because later on, uh, Melchizedek even mentions this, how, how, how the Lord has, has helped them out in defeating these kings. So they're learning lessons of, of trusting the Lord and the ability of the Lord to take on matters that are bigger than themselves and people that are bigger and stronger and situations that are bigger than themselves. It, it, it makes me wonder, as with today, we are sorely lacking leadership, capable leaders, to take us to the next stage of our evolution here. It seems like Abram really was a leader, but my question for you, C.L. Mitchell, could he almost be considered a foreigner in this text, in this area? Was he a foreigner in relationship to these kings? Absolutely. Um, uh, although, although he is um, uh, affiliated with Mesopotamia by birth, Ur of the Chaldees, uh, God has really broken that connection religiously, cultically. Uh, he has broken it socially. Uh, Abram commits a no-no. He turns his back on the clan. So he's a sojourner, a nomad, if you will. And uh, he follows his father uh, out of the land, probably for business reasons. But it's very clear that dualistically, he's also leaving the, the land for faith reasons and convictions, if you will. Uh, so it is absolutely right to say that he is a stranger and a sojourner, not only to those individuals, but also within the framework of the land of Canaan as well. I'd like to point out something very neat, both in this studio and for our listeners really quick, that I just think will be just a neat little uh, trail to, to mark something, if I may. Uh, if you look within this text, you'll see in uh, verse number five is what I really want to point out. Uh, just to make some significance of the names, if you will. In the 14th year, Shadalomar, 
and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim. Now that should really be underlined. In Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim, that should be underlined. Now let me tell you why that's so important, okay? First of all, let's go forward to the audience that Moses is speaking to. If you were to proceed to Deuteronomy chapter number two, uh, this is interesting. John is on the same page with me. This is so fun. <laughs> You're uh, taking my thunder, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's share this. Okay. I think it's really important to notice a very huge description that we have here. First of all, in chapter 2, verse number 9, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. The Emim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Now please note that it was not just Goliath and his brothers or his clan that were giants in the land. We also had a few other groups that were equal in size, if not comparative, if you will, comparable or competing, if you will, with the clan of the Anakim. What we have here is we have also great size in the Emim, if you will. Uh, and not only do we have great size in the Emim, but they are regarded as Rephaim, interestingly enough, because these are individuals that we see present in our text in Genesis 14. Also, if you go down throughout this text, what you'll also notice is a reference, if you will, uh, in verse number 20, it is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. What we actually have here is we have a few people who are very tall and who are great in number. Now, this is the interesting thing, and this is what I really want to be noticed, because in chapter number 14, in Abram's life, there is an awareness that there are giants in the land. The same kind of seed, if you will, that would be wrestled with later on by the children of Israel when they go into the land and have to wrestle with giants. What's going to happen is really even greater in progression as we go on. Well, what's interesting, and it's exactly right, this, these are, are giant-like people. But here's what's interesting is, is kings from, from Mesopotamia, uh, when they come down... They don't go to the to the alliance of kings by the Dead Sea. The the kings of of Sodom, Sodom, Gomorrah. Okay, those kings. They don't. They don't. And by way of the story, those kings had rebelled against the Mesopotamian king. So the Mesopotamian kings are coming across over to Israel, over to the, the Promised Land to to put them back into sub, subjugation. But before they get there, this is this is what's really interesting. They circle around to the back. They sort of defeat these other giant-like people first. Then they proceed to pr go down to uh, the area, uh, perhaps by the Dead Sea, then defeat these kings who had rebelled against them. And the point is, first of all, they are defe defeating these giants. So these Ketelamar and the others who are from Babylon are pretty strong to be able to defeat these giant-like peoples. And they're defeating them sort of so that they don't get pa uh, attacked from behind. When they're when they're uh, busy defeating the, uh, the the bear, the king, and, and Bersha and the others from Sodom and Gomorrah. So if, first of all, it speaks of the of the strength of this uh, uh, Babylonian um, kingship and, and and coalition 
to do this to them first. Now, the fact that Abram himself, with his uh, with his members, go and defeat these people speaks even more volumes. Because if these people defeat the giants, and Abram defeats these people, then he, they can defeat the giants as well. And it goes all back to, and the people of Israel are reading this, or they're knowing this, because they go in the Promised Land, and the Anakim are there. The giant-like people are there. They're big and tall. Well, Abram defeated them by virtue of the fact that he defeated the, the, the victor of them. So right. that's what's interesting. So by the time that these kings get to the the kings uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah, who are very weak, who basically run away and hide, um, they, they're no match. And, 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 um, and so it should sort of build up their faith, just seeing how strong the Lord was, just in Abram's fact. Now, Abram was most likely outnumbered. He, he and his men uh, were most likely outnumbered. So... Uh, God had to do certain things or had to work a certain way to defeat these uh, these kings. But that and it speaks volumes to the Israelites who are also going to be outnumbered and outmatched and out-equipped, et cetera, et cetera. And it should build up their faith when they, they face these same giants in the and land. And Abram is older. He's, he's older. Well, how old is he by this time? <laughs> th- th- remember, chapter 12, he's 75. Yeah. So we, he's, We've only moved to chapters 13 and 14. It's a few years. But we've at least got this man in his 80s, if not pressing them, or in, or in his... By the time we get to 15, he's... Uh, uh, chapter 16 or 15, he's uh, 80-something, about 83. Right. To, to, so, so you've got him between these ages, if you will. And, and so this is not some young, robust stag, if you will. He's defeating these people who have defeated giants by faith. The key to the defeat later on is going to be by faith. And if God blessed their father Abraham to have such victories. Right. And what's interesting here is you have a different picture of Abram. Because remember in chapter in twelve in chapter twelve, and when he goes down to Egypt, he doesn't want any conflict. Hey, here, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. I don't want any trouble. Okay? Chapter thirteen, hey Lot, you choose first. I don't want any trouble. But now in chapter fourteen he is a warrior. He is completely different from the other chapters. And the, these kings haven't invaded his land. Real, really, they haven't invaded this land. They have no uh, quarrel with him personally other than the fact that they took his, 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 uh, Lot, his nephew. And it, it was his family, obviously, and he sought to do something about it. So we see a different side of Abram, and you see the Lord working through Abram, even on this kind of side. He's not this passive person that you'll see some, from time to time. No, when somebody's in trouble, especially his family here, uh, he comes to help out, and he does. Before we move on, I have to ask this question. What is so special about these giants? Their size, their their spiritual impression left upon the people. And when I say that, um, I, I want to argue that when it comes to the Rephaim, literally, you can translate that uh, ghosts or spirits of the dead. And... Some in the ancient Near East believed that these seismic individuals were actually gods. We, we see that carried over into uh, Grecian mythology and Roman mythology and the mythology of other cultures and, and, and legends and things of that nature. And so their size argues that they are very powerful, uh, argues that they are thought of as superhuman in their day argues that they are thought of as somehow advantaged by the gods. So when you look at them again, in their day, they're not just thought to be robust, towering men. Their size becomes again 
a negative theological issue um, for not only how they are seen and interpreted from an ancient Near Eastern religious, but also how the people will view them from their own religious viewpoint. Because one of the key statements that's going to be made by the children of Israel is, we were grasshoppers in our own eyes. In other words, it's not just how they see the enemy, it's how they then view themselves. Ultimately, this is what's being argued on a larger scale. It's how they saw their enemy's gods, and it's how they saw their god. And when you look at this, you realize that for them, it really became a religious or a spiritual commentary. Uh, just to add a little bit, you see later on in history in, in the book of Joshua, and it talks about the conquest of Joshua. It talks about how um, the Anakim were in the country at that time, and the and they had uh, the only they had to, Joshua had destroyed them except for in certain areas, and there was no Anakim left in the land of Israel except only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. Where's that? Well, that's where those cities. That area is where uh, a certain giant named Goliath was from. So Goliath has his descendants. He's part of the Anakim as well. So we obviously know that Dave is going to face his own giant named Goliath, in the, in, who is a descendant uh, of these Anakim. Now, why is that so important? Let me just put I, a I, I was going to ask, there's a significance <laughs> here, and, and, and also when you answer this, is as we travel through the Old Testament, when do we start seeing the disappearance of these giants, or indeed... Do they pop up, maybe not in a narrative, but do we always know that that they are there in the background somewhere? Therein lies two to three questions. Number one, their significance. Number two, when do we start to see them fading off the scene of their disappearance? Or is there an assumption that they're always underlying they're somehow in the shadows, lurking in the shadows? Let me answer the one of significance first. As it pertains to significance, I just want you to really think about this. In the ancient Near East, if we can go back to this time, let's say we go back uh, 4,000 or so years. If we go back to this time, this is the importance because Abram is taking a huge risk here. And, and, and remember what John was saying earlier. Um, uh, in, in chapter 12, he's the consummate coward that puts his wife at risk. But Lot is not his wife. Uh, Lot is, is his nephew. So if you're going to take a risk on someone, you'd think you'd take it on Lot, not on Sarah. Okay, not on Sarai, if you will. And, and why is that so important? Because getting involved with these ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian kings was a big deal because he was setting himself up as a target for retaliation. In other words, almost everyone in the ancient Near East practiced retaliation. And it is still a major factor in the continuing political turmoil that characterizes the Middle East to this day. Uh, literally, people did not forgive or forget they harbored resentment for acts committed against their ancestors or for themselves for generation and took revenge when they thought they could succeed. So literally, David, here's the concept. If you were fighting a battle and you defeated someone across the way today, years later, their ancestors would come along and say, because of what you did to my father. Well, and, and isn't that also indicative of the way when God said to Abraham, these are your lands, I give these uh, to you and your descendants. And yet in a way, comes with that, this ongoing intergenerational, extended generational concept of uh, judgment and, and the inability to forgive that we see now in that region of the world. It seems to be never-ending. 
And I think that's I think that's fair. But I think what Abram does marvelously is answer, "Am I my brother's keeper?" Uh, he goes at great risk, and he doesn't have to. He could say, "Lo, you brought this on yourself." But what he does is he's willing to forgive, as you said. And I think in some ways what we see here is a further distance eschatological picture, if you will, of forgiveness that we see beautifully housed here in the man called Abram. Um, But this risk that he's taking, this has as its center love for Lot, whom, by the way, he's probably thinking earlier in chapter 12 he's going to be his heir. Now he's well aware that he's not going to be his heir, and he's still willing to take risks for Lot. And I really wonder the opposite, although the text doesn't raise the question. I wonder if Lot would have done the same thing for Abram. I'm not sure that he would have at all. Well, guided by the actions of of Lot in taking... uh the most uh, immediate gratification as he did it would suggest that that mindset is not going to change even down the road here so possibly he's as with people it's very difficult to change him so i'm sure that he would not take that position of love and compassion as abram did absolutely and and i think another another point that must be mentioned is part two and that's your second question what of these giants i think you start to see these giants strewn throughout the land and they are biblically to be dealt with as every particular clan, the, the Ammonite, uh, Ammonite, the, the Jebusite, the, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and on and on. They are to be dealt with uh, by God's edict. But what we see in the, in the case of even Joshua and what we see in the introductory phase of Judges is the giants that we have later on, are as a result of Israel's refusal to have strict obedience when they occupy the land. By the way, an obedience that Abram should have had because had Abram had that obedience, Lot would not have been where he was. He would have actually never come with Abram. Abram would have never had to be involved in this war, at least at this time, unless it came by some other means. Are you saying, in other words, that Abram does have to be accountable to some extent, has to take some responsibility for what is occurring here? Well, I mean, if it, you look back, if he goes to, to the promised land and, it's, and it becomes barren, it becomes, uh, you know, there's no crops, and he decides to go to Egypt not seeking the Lord of whether he should go. Well, if he doesn't go to Egypt, Lot doesn't go with him. And if he goes to Egypt uh, and not passing off his wife as his sister and then becoming enriched by Pharaoh and Lot, by virtue of his relationship with Abram, becoming enriched as well, you, you don't have any of this. You, you, it's, easy to, it's easy to look back on a person's life and say, well, if I would have done this, I would have done that. If I, well, we can't, <laughs> we can't, uh, we can't uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, And so we can look at Abram's life and say, well, he should have done this. The point is, is that Lot still had a choice to make. He still had, um, he still could have made different choices as well. Uh, but the fact that there wasn't uh, any hardship between the two uh, is evident in Abram's actions for Lot and, uh, and in his, uh, you know, refusal to hold a grudge, which is very significant because, um, you know the whole idea of forgiveness is is uh, is key to the whole Bible and and in solving conflict. But Abram doesn't hold grudges at all. But let's uh, finish up the program today, uh, culminating in verse sixteen. 
and I'm sure that there are some verses here that you would like to identify and then the next program for our listeners will continue chapter 14 from uh, God's promise to Abram from 17 onwards are there any verses between 10 and 16 that we should focus on uh, clearly uh, for me it's the way that the kings um, fled and that they did uh, flee to the hill country which is a paradigm that continues to this very day especially in uh, countries like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq are there any other uh, particular areas of focus there for you gentlemen that you would like to talk about yeah what's going to be interesting is you have these five kings from the Dead Sea area you have Barak king of Sodom whose uh, his name is is from the form of the word to be evil so he get a picture. His name is related to the word for evil, uh, and also Bersha as well is his name is related to the word to be uh, wicked and wickedness. Uh, you have a little picture maybe of their character, but they are weak, and they run away. Yet you're going to see later on that they're going to demand certain things. They are going to be defeated kings. Yet they're going to demand from a from Abram. Uh, the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, they do f flee, and uh, uh, of course, uh, Abram, what's interesting, I think, in these verses as well, is how quickly Abram goes to rescue Lot. He wastes no time, which tells me something. He's prepared. Uh, his men have been, have been trained. He is ready to go at a moment's notice, and the fact that he goes, uh, gathers up his men, and they go by night, and they march several miles up just to catch up to them, and defeat these forces is significant. He is he is a prepared warrior, and maybe the fact that they fought at night uh, maybe caused confusion for the uh, the enemy kings. Uh, but he defeats them and brings back uh, Lot with his possessions and the people. And this the next section is where we'll see this sort of this this conflict or this dialogue and even temptation uh, with this uh, with this good uh, this good king King uh, Melchizedek and this bad king uh, the king of Sodom who's unnamed but we know where he stands and the choices that Abram will make and how to handle this uh, you'll see more of of the kind of character that Abram is 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 uh, his refusal to really accept an, any uh, reward from the king of Sodom who by the way hadn't was not in any place to offer anything. He's defeated king. He lost all his possessions, lost the people, and he's in no possession. So it's there's a there's an interesting dynamic in this dialogue here. I'm not sure if we'll get to it today, but probably next week. May I ask you, C.O. Mitchell, uh, with uh, verse 12, is there ample evidence, however, in this narrative that Abram really was aware that Lot was living in Sodom at this stage? I think that verse number 13 clarifies verse number 12. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. And it goes on. In, in other words, it seems very probable that Abram could have known his intentions as a result earlier of him choosing this land, number one. I'm sure that having looked out at that plush land, um, Abram was somewhat aware that this was where he was going to settle, albeit he might not have known the specific address, as it were, unless they had runners between the two. And there is probably some camaraderie betwixt the two, so there is a chance for that. Um, uh, secondarily, when the situation occurs, there is, of course, a fugitive who's making it away from that situation who seems to inform Abram, as well as later on in chapter number 19, Abram could look 
and tell uh, that there was a a very bad situation going on in that particular geographical area. You know, what's interesting is the progression you see of Lot. First, he, he goes, he looks at the land, and he is camping near Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. And, of course, later on in chapter 19, he's going to be a sort of a respected citizen or try to be. This whole event with the kings of getting out of Sodom or getting uh, rescued by Abram is not going to change him at all. In fact, it's going to be very difficult even in chapter 19 for him to, to, to leave. And the angels have to literally drag him out. You see his heart is going to be ever so close to going towards Sodom. And Sodom is not a good place. It is not a place where he should be. But yet there's something that's drawing him there ever so closely. And now he's living there in the midst of these people. Uh, who are later going to turn against him in in a later chapter? So you this this interesting uh, difference or divergence from from the character of Abram versus the character of Lot you're seeing right now. Absolutely, he has a hold on Sodom, and Sodom has a hold on him. Sion Mitchell, in the last three minutes, would you like to uh, provide us with a overview of fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, and perhaps when we start our next program, we'll have the opportunity to review them again before we move into God's promise. A, a summary of the latter phase of 14 would be this. Having refused the provisions, I don't want to call them blessings, having refused the provisions from these wicked kings um, and having trusted God and entrusted himself wholly to God, Melchizedek is going to come about as a literal person is what we're going to propose who is a historical figure or king who, by the way, is going to be a type of Jesus Christ's priesthood in the New Testament precisely because he is king and priest. He holds both offices. And precisely because um, uh, he is able to bless the lesser Abraham as the greater and precisely because as uh, a priest um, he is going to be able as a literal person to have a loss of his record not that he had a lack thereof but there would be a loss in the annals of records of his birth and of his demise so that there would be an eternality if you will depicted in the future as it is compared to the priesthood of Jesus Christ it is a continual priesthood and its efficacy going on and on versus the uh, priesthood of the Levites which would be limited over time that's going to kind of be the consummation of chapter number 14 chapter number 15 this whole concept is going to really come into a lens, as it were. What we see in generality is going to be spoken of in specificity as the promise of a son is going to be given to Abram, but Abram is going to again struggle in his faith when we get to chapter 16, and he's going to make a terrible tie, a terrible connection, a terrible act that uh, he and Sarah are going to agree on with Hagar, and it's actually not only going to reap bad consequences immediately for them in the near future, uh, and in their relationship maritally, and in their relationship socially, and in their relationship with the child. Ishmael, but literally Ishmael is going to literally in some ways be a burr in the saddle of the nation of Israel and of the world 
in the future on an eschatological scale. So that's kind of a, a very truncated summarization of what those three chapters will entail. Would you just like to complete your definition of verse 16 as we finish the program, John? Here, uh, Abram is just, you know, sort of the, the, the people that have left him and the, and the, and the, uh, the goods that uh, Lot took with him. And, of course, his own people are, are rescued by Abram. Um, the Lot is, is, uh, uh, is going to, um, he, is, he is going to, uh, you get the sense he's not going to really appreciate what Abram does because he goes back to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, but you still get the sense that, that, uh, that, that God's not finished with, uh, with Abram's promises to him, which we'll see later on in chapter 15 and, and 16, with CL talking about chapter 16. Uh, about his reaffirmation, his promises in chapter seventeen, he'll he'll uh, carry that as, uh, further as well. But but the as for for next week, as far as the, the last part of chapter fourteen, and this meeting with Melchizedek and with um, the king of Sodom, uh, you're going to see this that the blessings that Sodom offers him to to Abram, and Abram refused. God is going to turn around in chapter fifteen and say, listen. You are refused uh, to receive a reward from King Sodom. I'm going to be reward. I'm going to give you a blessing more than the kings of this world, more than the, uh, than the world has to offer you. I'm going to offer you uh, uh, from 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 God Himself. So uh, we'll see more of that next time. Uh, let me just give our audience something that they can park on. The situation that Abram faced taking 318 men is very similar to what Gideon faces in Judges taking only 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. What's the big picture here for someone to take home? God is able to give a trusting and obedient minority victory over ungodly forces that are overwhelmingly superior in numbers. Today, I don't care how we fight in society. We may often feel outnumbered as believers in Jesus Christ. But we've been there before through history, and God has always, through grace, granted believers victory because he is always more with us than the innumerable forces that appear to be against us. C.L. Mitchell, John Corr, thank you so much for joining me today for Chapter 14, which we will continue in the next program. It's been a great privilege once more, and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. We look forward to seeing you, you as well, David. Thank you. And for our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, God bless you wherever you are in this world. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. 
Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. 